John chapter 3. Christmas is an interesting time at a church because we're thankful for other churches out there that obviously this morning have received some of our members. And then we have plenty of visitors here this morning as well. So it's kind of like a new congregation here. So our congregation is somewhere else. And we're glad to have uh, many of you here with us. But uh, we're thankful uh, that we can get together and speak about and focus upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Some of you have already given gifts, uh, exchange gifts already today, I'm sure. Uh, Christmas is one of those times where, you know, gone are the days where you only celebrate one Christmas. You have probably Christmas Eve Christmas, and you have Christmas morning Christmas, and you have Christmas evening Christmas. And some of you who have extended families, now you're doing Boxing Day Christmas. And at the end of it all, you've had three or four or five Christmases. Some of you may have already even exchanged gifts this morning. I don't know. Uh, What are those gifts like? Do you like what you've received so far? Have you ever gotten a gift where it was very, very clearly given to you just out of obligation? You ever been given one of those gifts before? The person giving it doesn't really want to give it to you, and then you take it, but you don't really want to take it because you know it's being given out of obligation. That's awkward. The best, best gifts that are given by others, by the way, this is the sermon introduction. Uh, the best gifts that are given are those that are given not out of obligation, but out of love, right? Have you ever been given a gift from somebody, and uh, you open it up, and you think, this has got to be for someone else, because this is not anything I'm interested in. Uh, maybe it's clothing, and it would never fit you. It's never something you would ever wear. It's so off the mark that it seemed as if the person maybe got it for something completely different, and at the last moment, just slapped your name on it. Have you ever gotten a gift from someone, and you've opened it up, and yeah, you're thankful. You want to be thankful for the gift, but clearly, there was no effort, uh, no expense, and I'm not talking about money necessarily, but no time, no thought went into this thing, and you think this person definitely uh, did not uh, sacrifice at all in order to give this gift. And I'm not trying to sound ungrateful, but we can all recognize that the, there are different gifts uh, that we receive at the Christmas season. Some of them thought has gone into, that. some that are given you know, thoughtfully, sacrificially? Or have you ever been given a gift from someone and you receive it and you realize there's some strings attached to this thing? If I'm going to receive this gift from this person, then I know that they're going to have an expectation from me. Uh, Or maybe the person that gives you the gift expecting that you're going to give a gift in return. Uh, The best gifts this Christmas season are those that are given freely, that are given thoughtfully, that are given sacrificially. The best gifts are those that we receive from someone who knows us and values us and who are even willing to sacrifice for us. Those are the best gifts. With that list in mind, this morning we're just going to consider God as the greatest gift giver. In John chapter 3, we find Jesus interacting with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a leading teacher of the Jews. This was a man who was relying upon his own sense of self-righteousness, his own man-made traditions, his own sense of ethnic entitlement. He's relying upon all of those things, assuming that they are what's going to get him into the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to challenge him on each of these points. What we're going to see in John chapter 3 is this man, Nicodemus, needed to learn what we all need to learn is that salvation comes to us as a free gift from God who is the greatest gift giver. John chapter 3 verse 16. 
Even if you don't generally attend church, you, you heard this verse. John says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. As we think about Christmas and surround ourselves with gifts, we need to learn this morning what Nicodemus needed to learn. God is the greatest gift giver who has given us the greatest gift of His Son. So that all who, what does it say? All who believe in Him might have eternal life. Immediately prior to this statement in John 3.16, in John 14 and John 15, 14 and 15, Jesus has just reminded Nicodemus of a very seminal event in the history of Israel. Look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is a very interesting situation in the history of Israel. It was a time where Israel was rebelling against God. And here they find themselves in the midst of their own sin. And God pours out judgment upon Israel at that time. And he does it in the form of serpents, poisonous serpents, kind of like a plague uh, in, in Israel. Israel repents, God hears their repentance, and then he provides a means by which they can be delivered from that plague. And he doesn't just take them away, take these serpents away immediately, but what he does, very interestingly, is he has Moses make a golden rod, and on the golden rod he puts a golden serpent, and the idea was is that all who looked upon that rod and upon that serpent that was lifted up, all who looked on that, believing that God would deliver them, would be saved from the plague. Very odd, odd picture, odd situation. But then John follows up and comments on that in 3.16 and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is he saying? He's saying just like Israel in the Old Testament, who found themselves overcome by the consequence of their own sin without an ability to deliver themselves from the plague, God then providing salvation for them through belief as they looked upon the serpent lifted up high. So then... All the world, overcome by their own sin and its consequences, unable to deliver themselves, must look at the Son who's been lifted up in order to deliver them from sin. That's the idea. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Just as God provided a means of salvation for judgment for the Jews, He's now provided a means of salvation for all. If you're here this morning, you don't generally attend church. I mean, here it is. God has extended salvation, the offer of salvation to you this morning. Just as God's provision of salvation for the Jews featured a serpent lifted high on a pole, so His provision of salvation for all features His Son lifted high upon the cross. Just as God provided salvation for all the rebellious Jews through belief or through faith alone, so the salvation He provides us through His Son is through faith alone. And notice there in John 3.16, it says that God expressed his love for the entire world by what? By giving, by giving. For God so loved that he gave, that he gave. Well, in the few moments that we have this morning, we're just going to consider Jesus as the greatest gift and what makes Jesus the greatest gift which the Father could give to us. The first thing we see in John 3.16 is that Jesus is a gift which was motivated by love. And these are the greatest gifts. The gift that you receive doesn't have to cost a lot, but you receive a gift from somebody and something about it could just be a card with a note in it. 
uh, but those gifts that you receive, which clearly reflect the fact that the person who gave it loves you. Jesus is the gift motivated by love. And notice here it says, for God so loved the world, he loved the world. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been attending church for some time, you're familiar with Scripture, you're saying, wait a second, and I think even last week we saw in the book of 1 John, where John said to believers, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But here in John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world. Well, wait a second, for God so loved the world, but Christians are told to not love the world. What's going on? Well, it's the word world being used in two different senses. We're not to love the world when it comes to the societal system which is wholly given over to sin, the world's values, the world's philosophies, the world's entertainment, the world's pride and lust and covetousness and and giving over to worldly passions. In that sense, we're not to love the world. But what John 3.16 is talking about is God's love for humanity. God's love for humanity. Mankind, even in his fallenness, even in his lostness, even in his sin, God loves. Why? Because all human beings are made in the image of God. They're all made in the image of God. Even in their sinful rebellion against God, all of humanity are precious souls in the eyes of God. God looked upon the entire world with loving compassion then, and he sent his son as a love gift to atone for their sin. So what's the consequence then? What's the practical application? This morning, if you're a believer, if we are to be like our heavenly father, we too ought to love the world in that sense. We had to see men and women, Christian and non-Christian alike, as precious souls. Christians talk a lot about the sanctity of life. You know, we're in favor of the anti-abortion movement. But sometimes we talk about the sanctity of life, and when it comes outside of the womb, we seem to not have the same uh, value assigned to life. If we're to be like our Heavenly Father, we ought to have loving compassion upon the fallen world. Children in the womb, adults, those with a religious background, those with no religious background, those who kind of live upstanding, reputable lives, those who don't. This love is not just a spoken love, according to our passage. It says, for God so loved that he gave. The genuineness of God's love is seen in that he gives. We can speak words of love. We can say, oh, we love people. But what did John say in 1 John? He says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the type of love which we're called to show to others, a love which gives. When God gave his son to the world, it was the greatest manifestation of divine love that he could ever extend. And he did it at a time while we were yet sinners. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we can see the love of God. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. As God looked upon sinful humanity, his own creatures in rebellion against him, He saw us not only as sinful rebels, but he saw us as those who suffer as a result of our sin. In his love, he sent his son. But in what way was the sending of the the son an act of love towards sinners? 
Well, 1 John 4.10, it says he loved us and sent his son to, to be a propitiation for our sins. Well, what does that big theological word mean? God sent his son to make an acceptable sacrifice in order to atone for our sins. In other words, in God's love, he gave a gift perfectly suited to our needs. He gave a gift perfectly suited for our needs. In his love, he sees our sin. In answer to our sin, he sends his son to be a propitiation. And again, all motivated by love. But that brings us to our second point. The best gifts are those that are motivated by love. And the best gifts are those that take our needs into account. Jesus is the perfect gift motivated by love. He's also the perfect gift perfectly suited to our needs. Look in verse chapter 3, verse 16 again. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, what? Should not perish, but have eternal life. What's the implication? That without the gift of the Son, all will perish. Without the gift of the Son, all will perish. God looks upon sinful humanity and sees us as those suffering as a consequence of our own sin. Without his intervention, we'll all perish. So in his love, motivated then to give that gift perfectly suited to our need, something which will save us from that perishing. So that none would perish but have eternal life. Because of our innate sinfulness, we're all naturally estranged from God, lacking spiritual life. A man without God is destined to perish. So as the greatest gift giver, God provided exactly what we needed at exactly the right time. Remarkably, he did this while we were entirely undeserving and entirely unable to rectify our own situation. Romans chapter 5 or 6, it says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Maybe, maybe sometimes one would be willing to give themselves and sacrifice for somebody else, somebody that they valued, somebody that was a good person. Okay, maybe, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you, what, what does mankind need? What do we need? What do lost sinners actually need? Do we need a second chance? Is that what we need? Okay, uh, forgive everything you've ever done, and here's your second chance. Go have at it. Do better this time. How would that work out? Does he need a second chance? Does he need a hand up? Do we simply need a motivational speech? What do lost sinners need? As sinners, we're hopelessly weak. We are, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, spiritually dead. What we need is not a leg up and not a second chance. What we need is a loving Savior who can atone for our sin and make a way that we can attain eternal life, not based upon human righteousness because we have none of our own, but according to faith alone. And that's exactly what God has done for us through Jesus. And then in Romans 5, 6, it says, God sent him at just the right time. When we're weak, unable to save ourselves. God didn't provide a salvation by works. He didn't provide a salvation by works when we needed mercy. God did not send us a second chance when we needed grace. Instead, while we were hopelessly lost in our sin, he sent exactly what we needed, which was a Savior to be accepted by grace through faith. 
Could you imagine looking upon someone in desperate need, someone who needs immediate help, and instead of helping them, just maybe lecturing them about how they got into the trouble they're in? I mean, you've seen that meme before, you know, the person who's drowning and their hand sticking out of the water, and a hand is out there that looks like it's going to help them, and then the next frame, he's just giving them a high five. You're okay. No need to help. Or maybe what you could do is just shout at them, that drowning person, and say, well, look at the mess you've gotten yourself into. That's oftentimes the approach that Christians take. Being saved by grace through faith alone, not according to their works, but then all of a sudden turning and becoming judgmental at those who are still lost in their sin. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? An absolute uh, lack of appreciation for being saved by grace through faith. No self-awareness that we have been saved when we couldn't save ourselves, and instead we look at the world and then judge sinners who are still captive to their sin. It's like watching a drowning man, instead of taking immediate action to help him, choosing instead to rebuke him. Lecture. Could you imagine looking at someone suffering under the consequences of their own sin and instead of sharing Jesus with them, condemning them? You say, oh, this is one of those churches, right? It's just like, you know, soft on sin, easy on sin, just want to talk about love all the time, right? You can tell you're a visitor. <laughs> uh, John 3.17, look at it. Immediately after John 3.16 comes John 3.17. For... God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yeah, Jesus called men and women to repentance, turn from your sin, place your faith in him, absolutely. But he also enslaved his harshest words for those who are dependent upon their own self-righteousness for salvation. That's what he's doing with Nicodemus here. When we were hopelessly lost in sin, rebelling against him, continually indulging in our sinful desires to our own hurt, he did not send his son to condemn us, but to save us. He didn't beat us down with guilt, but sent the one who could cleanse our conscience. He didn't lecture us. He loved us. He didn't condemn us. He had compassion. He didn't guilt us. Instead, he gave his only son. So then did he overlook sin? Sin's no big deal. Not at all. Sin is serious. Sin must be judged. And this is why God expressed his love towards us by providing Jesus to do what? The big word that we saw, remember? He provided him as a propitiation. He gave himself to atone for our sin, to fully satisfy God's judgment towards our sin, so that God's wrath would be turned away from us, because Jesus himself paid the penalty for our sin. As the greatest gift giver, he sent his son to die in our place, thus atoning for our sins, providing a salvation attained by grace through faith. This was the gift perfectly suited to our need. Perfectly, he perfectly understood our limitations and our inability. Paul picks up on this in Titus chapter 3. This ought to be the confession of every believer. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when we cleaned our lives up, no. But when we came to ourselves and decided to be better men, once I started listening to Jordan Peterson and all those self-help guys out there, then I got it together. I like Jordan Peterson. That wasn't a... uh, 
Not Christmas music, but no. Sorry. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now, if you're not somebody who attends church, you're not familiar with Christianity except for stereotypes that you have in your mind. This is going to blow you away. This is, this is, this is the only salvation that the Bible offers is a salvation that comes not by works. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Oh, those Christian people are people who just think they got it all together and they're going to, you know, uh, just try to, they, they think that they, uh, they have a morality that's going to maybe earn them favor with God and they're the special ones who can just get God it all. Not at all. He saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Believers are those who are wholly dependent only upon the mercy of God. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is entirely the work of God. In God's love, he provided a means of salvation, not dependent upon our works, not dependent upon our righteousness, but all according to his mercy. In his mercy, he shows compassion upon us who were captive to sin. This love is magnified when we consider that the suffering that so many of us experience in this life is due to our own sin. It's self-inflicted. We suffer as a consequence of our own bitterness, our own hatred, our own jealousy, our own pride. We suffer as a consequence of giving into our sinful lusts, giving into our sinful passions. We suffer as a result of us resorting to sin in order to cope with life. Yet even then, looking upon a people suffering the consequences of their own sinfulness, God shows mercy. God shows mercy. As he sees our suffering, he's moved to compassion. And in that compassion, he provides a means of salvation. And what a lesson here, again, for us to turn and to look at those who are still in their sin and to exercise that same compassion. I mean, that junkie who's strung out on the corner of Olette Street, right? The guy who's hooked on meth, who's hooked on fentanyl. The, the sex worker whose body has been ravaged with the consequence of their own sin. What should we see in that? Sometimes what we see physically in those who've, who've just decimated their lives physically through sin, we ought to be able to look at that and say, except by the mercy and grace of God, there go I. It's the same sin. It's the same fallen nature. And just because we have not, by the restraining hand of God, uh, expressed our depravity to the same degree as others, doesn't mean we're not capable of the exact same things. It's only by the mercy of God that he has provided salvation for us by grace, not according to our human works, but according to his mercy. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ is the perfect gift, and God is the perfect gift giver. Jesus Christ is a gift given, motivated by love. He's also a gift given which is perfectly suited to our need as lost sinners. And next of all, we see that Jesus Christ is that perfect gift given at great personal cost to the Father. Look in John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son. 
in giving Jesus, God the Father gave the greatest gift that could be given because it came at the greatest cost. You know, there is no love existent in all of the universe greater than the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says of the entire Godhead, God is love. God is love. God is the standard of love. When we say love, that love is only love according to the standard of the love that exists within the Trinity. The perfect love is that love which exists between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet the Father sent His Son to take on flesh, the incarnation, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, to live as a man, to be rejected by men, to die an excruciating death upon a cross, to bear the sins of all who would believe in Him. The Father looked upon the Son whom He loved, and He watched Him suffer and die. He watched Him and suffer to suffer and die for the sins of those who were crucifying Him. On the cross, remember, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This heart-rending cry would break the heart of any loving father. How much the more would it break the heart of the heavenly father who loves so perfectly? The Apostle Paul speaks to the indescribable cost paid by the father in giving his son in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So great is the offering of his son that nothing else that he could ever give could ever be greater than that gift, is what Romans 8.32 is saying. Now, just a word here. You say, well, the father gave his son, and some would say, well, Christianity is a, what, what is it? Is this divine child abuse? You have a father giving his son as a sacrifice? Come on. Galatians 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Jesus Christ gives himself according to the will of the Father. So after millennia of sin and rebellion from his creatures, God provides a means to atone for and free us from our sin. He provides the means to save us at great personal cost, recognizing that we're hopelessly lost and unable to save ourselves. We can't rectify our own situation. He takes the initiative. He provides a salvation which could not be attained by human works or human righteousness, but only by faith. And he does this at great personal cost. Lastly, You know, back in the day, I might use the illustration of, remember, remember Oprah? Remember Oprah, you know, she'd have her, her audience there. And at the end of the show, she'd be like, everybody look under your chair. And they'd all find car keys. You all get a new car. You get a car. And you get a car. And, and, and like, it's one generation gets that. The new generation would probably be like some of these YouTube influencers who, who do this thing where they want to walk around. They give like 100 people gifts. You say, well, that's amazing and that's awesome. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the greatest gift because this is a gift that's provided for all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You say, well, does that mean then that the entire world has eternal life? No. 
We'll explain that in a minute. Now, Jesus, remember the context here. Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus who's religious. He's religious. But he's dependent upon his own righteousness for salvation and for eternal life. And Jesus at this point is blowing his mind because Jesus is presenting himself, first and foremost, as the only source of eternal life to Nicodemus. You think that eternal life is to be found in your good works? He says, no, you've got to believe in the Son. Second, he's showing Nicodemus that faith and not works is the means by which one etern- uh, uh, attains eternal life. But then third, Jesus is showing Nicodemus that this eternal life is by faith and open to whoever believes. Because what's Nicodemus' mind? Number one, salvation is for those who earn it. But two, salvation is for those among the Jews who earn it. When Jesus is saying, no, God has offered a salvation to all, indiscriminately, the only thing that determines whether or not one attains that eternal life is what? Not ethnicity, not background, uh, not even works, but what? Belief. Belief. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This becomes very practical because this morning, if you would have eternal life, what's the answer? If you're still saying, be a good person, don't make me start over again here, right? Uh, it, What determines whether or not you have eternal life? Belief. To believe what? To believe in Jesus is not to simply believe that he merely existed or even to simply believe that he died on a cross. To believe in Jesus is to believe what God has said about his son. It is to believe that Jesus is the authoritative Lord. He's authority. It's to believe that he's the only Savior who has made an atoning sacrifice. That is, he actually gave himself as a payment for the consequence of your sin and my sin. He's the only Lord. He's the only Savior. This belief then entails a complete trust in him as our Savior and Lord. There's no other way to be saved. Not relying upon my good works. I'm not relying upon any other religious system. I'm not relying upon any other mediator. I'm relying upon Christ and Christ alone. And it's this genuine belief, then, that is lived out practically over time. And the living out of that practically is not what earns salvation, but it's just the nature of salvation. When you're granted eternal life, the Holy Spirit then is given to you, and then uh, he produces fruit over time. And according to Jesus, it is this sort of belief, what does he say, that results in eternal life. Eternal life is not just about duration. You're going to live forever. Eternal life also has to do with the nature of that life. This is spiritual life. This is life given by the Spirit of God. We're all born into this world spiritually dead. The Spirit then makes us spiritually alive. We can now have communion with God. This is a spiritual life which ushers us into fellowship with the Trinity. We're now caught up into that divine love. Spiritual life, which is a product of the Holy Spirit transforming us on the inside. And according to Jesus Uh, that life is eternal. A union with God, a spiritual transformation, a regeneration, which translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Through belief in Jesus, we are granted eternal life, which means we need never fear death or perishing, but instead understand that we are made new creatures. We're made new creatures fit for a new creation. 
provision for this sort of salvation has been made for whom? For the entire world. For the entire world. Say, okay, so then I'm good. God provides a gift for the entire world. There it is, eternal life through Jesus. I'm good because that shows me that now I have that eternal life. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 19, we're going to see, and we're going to conclude here, we're going to see that not everybody is going to receive that gift. Not everyone's going to receive that gift. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So God gives the greatest gift, motivated by love, a great personal cost, given for all, and not all receive it. And this is the judgment. This exposes the sinful heart of men. This is the judgment because God sheds light in what happens. It's like you turn on the light. I know this is a bad illustration. Okay, I'll use a different illustration. We'll go from, co- we'll go from cockroaches to mice, okay? <laughs> That's the best I can do, okay? It's the best I can do. We're presently having a mouse problem right now in our house. My, my, and I think I know what the problem is, and we're going to fix it, but my, my wife bought a bunch of chocolate bars, and these mice love chocolate. They ate all the chocolate. She had, she had chocolate bars that she's going to use in her class on Sunday nights, and the mice ate all the chocolate. These got to be some fat mice. Uh, <laughs> if you see any mice around that look like they have diabetes, those are the ones. <laughs> but, uh, but they only come out at night. You turn on the light, and they scatter, Right? I know it's a bad illustration, but God sends a gift, and he says, I'm sending a gift of light, and what happens? Men don't like light. Sinners don't like light. Instead of a personal recognition that I'm a sinner and I need deliverance, Lord, thank you for sending the light. I love my, I love my darkness. I actually prefer my sin. I enjoy being captive to this. I enjoy indulging in the passions of my flesh. And it says there in verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. If I admit that, there, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's Savior, with that accompanies that is in recognition that I'm a sinner, that I need salvation, that I have personal guilt, that I cannot rectify on my own that I need a salvation by grace through, through faith, not dependent upon my own works or ability. He's saying sinners don't want to make that confession. They don't want their works exposed. Verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The evidence then that God is the one working in you, the evidence then that God is the one generating that faith in you, is that you come to Christ. Fast forward to John 6, and you see that laid out explicitly. Since the precious gift which the Father has given is his Son, sent to atone for our sins, to receive that gift is to admit that we need the gift. To trust Jesus as Savior is to admit that we are sinners and in need of a Savior. Again, that's like one coming to the light out of darkness, saying, I'm sick of the darkness. I don't want to be in the darkness anymore. I see in the face of Jesus Christ uh, the divine glory of God, and I'm coming to the light. Some will come to Jesus confessing their sin, readily admitting that they're lost sinners in need of a Savior. These men and women will value God's gift as extremely precious. 
These will embrace Christ as Savior and Lord and live their lives with a perpetual sense of indebtedness to God. These will recognize that Jesus is God's gift of love, perfectly suited to our needs, and a gift given at great personal cost. And it's those, and those alone, who will receive eternal life. These who come to the light will clearly reveal that God has worked in their hearts and by His power brought them to Jesus. On the other hand, there are those who will not admit their sinners. They will not recognize the severity of their sin. They will not recognize the depths of their own need. They will not see value in the gift that God has extended through the Son. Jesus' death upon the cross is not a precious gift to them. To them, it's entirely unnecessary. These men and women will not come to Christ for salvation because to do so is to be exposed as sinners. These are those who are perfectly content in their own sinful state, would rather avoid the light and remain in darkness. And so John says in verse 19, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, as we close, that's the question. The question isn't what will God do or what has God done. We see that explicitly. God loved the world in the midst of their sin. God loves you in the midst of your sin. What must you do then? Work your way out of that sin? You dug yourself a hole, now try to get yourself out? No. Simply what you must do is admit, I am a sinner. There's a consequence for my sin. I'm unable to rectify that on my own. I need the gift which the Father has provided, which is His Son. I confess that He is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died in my place upon the cross, and now He is exalted as Savior and Lord, and I receive the eternal life which He gives freely. That's it. That's the gift that's offered to you this morning. As we close and go about our Christmas day, let's keep in mind that Christmas is not just about baby in a manger, but that birth had incredible significance. When the child was born 2,000 years ago, that represented the greatest gift that could ever be given to humanity. This is a gift given out of love, perfectly suited for our need and given at great personal cost. As Isaiah 9, 6 said hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, for unto us a child is born and to us a son is given. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we pray for those this morning who have maybe never heard the gospel. They have not heard a clear explanation of how to receive eternal life. We pray that uh, you continue to work in their hearts and help them to see their need for Jesus. Help them to uh, receive the gift that you've given. Help them to recognize Christ as precious, as an invaluable gift that's perfectly suited to their needs. I pray that some would be saved, trusting Jesus Christ as the only Savior, recognizing Christ as rightful Lord. And I pray that you would grant eternal life to these. We know that that's your promise. And so, Lord, we pray that some would be saved and that they continue in the faith, proving the genuineness of their salvation. And then for those who are Christians already, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to have a sense of utter indebtedness and thankfulness uh, to you for Jesus. Help us to see Jesus as the pearl of great price, as the treasure in the field. Help us to see him as absolutely and entirely precious to us. Uh, Help us to continually recognize our need for Christ. And then also as believers, help us to adopt your attitude towards those who have not yet come to Christ. Help us to recognize that we were once captive to sin, only delivered by your mercy. So as we see others 
caught up in their own sin, even suffering as a consequence of their own sin. Help us to see them as captives who need deliverance instead of uh, having a spirit of condemnation. And so help us to have uh, your spirit of mercy towards the world. And with that spirit, help us to evangelize and to share the gospel with others. And now, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us as we go our own ways and as we interact with family members this Christmas. Help us to use our opportunities as we gather together with family members who are not yet believers, uh, whether it be at family dinners or gift exchanges. Give us grace. Sometimes those things can be difficult. Um, And so help us to be wonderful representations of Jesus Christ. Uh, Help us to not argue. Help us to not quarrel. Instead, help us to show mercy and grace. Help us to extend uh, your love to others. I pray that they could see in us a transformed life. Um, And so help us. Uh, to be that light shining in darkness uh, in these coming days. We thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.